Welcome back. <clears throat> so I want to take a little bit of time to speak about the practice we just have been doing before. It's called Marana Sati or Maranu Sati. And uh, it's basically remembering the Dhamma of death as a preparation to return, you know, to the vastness from which we emerge, the mystery. You know, when a baby is born, it's kind of a mystery. It's just emerging out of the vastness. And then when the time comes for us, when the body dies, it goes back. And then another body emerges and goes back. So this is arising and ceasing, happening on all levels. And then when we for the first time allow ourselves to consider this, it's like it stops the mind because that mystery can't be really understood, but the heart knows. And I'd like to share with you a poem from the first three women. The collection, we have been sharing poems over the last two years or three years or so. And they are contemporary adaptations based on the um, Enlightenment poems of the early Buddhist nuns. And there's one which is really very fitting for the theme of today. And the poem is called Sela the Rock. Long after the front gate swung closed behind me, I could still hear them. Why talk so much about death? Find a husband to share your bed. Bring children into the world to leave behind after you are gone. But ever since I invited my own death into bed with me, I no longer feel lonely or afraid of the dark. What do we really bring into the world? What do we leave behind? A gate swings closed, then opens. Where does it come from? Where does it all go? Where does it come from? Where does it all go? This is really another realization of emptiness, which is uh, spoken about here in this poem. The, you know, the realization of non-separation, which we also have been you know, mentioning and, and considering by the meditation on the elements. Because when we are realizing, you know, there is no internal and external, then it becomes you know, ever clearer that this is just processes. And because of our language, which we are, we are using nouns to speak about those processes, there is a, is a kind of underlying assumption that they are unchanging entities, separate things. And then through these meditations, you know, these assumptions getting um, adjusted, getting let go of through direct experience. 
And then also she says, but ever since I invited my own death into bed with me, I no longer feel lonely or afraid of the dark. Because it, yeah, there's a realization of uh, emptiness is also that enrichment of really knowing that we belong to something much bigger than just this little body, you know, in a, which can die, which can get sick and which ages. But this body is just borrowed. It is a riding animal. And when the time comes to give it back, if we know that already ahead of time and getting used to that thought, it'd be much easier to give it back. We might even, you know, be quite fine with giving it back if it gets very sick or if it gets really very old. Why not? Because another one will come along. And, you know, to cultivate this uh, deep understanding, that's why Maranasati is one of the three practices in the first establishment of mindfulness. And to just remind you shortly, you know, we spoke about two already earlier. The first one were the anatomical parts, which, you know, lead to detachment, asuba practice. And then, you know, the effect on the mind is, is a letting go and a calming and the substitute, you know, for attaching to the beauty of the body is beauty of mind, which is the result you know, of the calming of the mind. And then the second one, the elements, you know, realizing that there is really no internal and no external. Seeing anatta, seeing emptiness leads to disidentification. You know, waking up and out of this dream of separation. And then now with the Maranusati mortality, you know, reflecting on mortality, that's like seeing the cutting edge of the impermanence practice, anicca, which leads to letting go. Because if the mind really clearly sees reality, it adjusts and lets go of former ideas about the way things are. And for that, you know, we really need to see very clearly and consistently that we, which we normally don't, you know, we are not encouraged to look at. Looking at particular features of our experience, we usually don't look at or even, you know, get encouraged by our culture to avoid those truths. And as uh, I think Ayadamadipa said yesterday, you know, the culture does not um, encourage us to look at old age, sickness and death. It's the opposite. It likes us to buy a lot of products in order to pretend it's not happening. There's a whole huge businesses are built on that. And, you know, huge uh, billboards and all kinds of, uh, you know, video clips and so on are, 
are kind of, you know, following us day and night almost to convince us that it's a, it, we make a mistake if we get sick, we make a mistake if we get old. We need to just buy the right products and everything will be what? You know, they don't say that. They just give some kind of very uh, seductive images. And these practices are there to counteract that conditioning. It's, it's a science in itself, I think, meanwhile, you know, to, to really uh, understand how the psyche works and uh, create these very seductive images, which, um, you know, lead a lot of uh, ignorance and misunderstandings. Because, you know, as, as uh, opposed to animals, we, we do know that we will die. We all share, we share the survival instinct with all animals. But we are the only one of the animals who knows that we can't really survive. So there's this tension in our psyche, in our being, you know, having the survival instinct on one hand, but at the same time knowing that we will die one day. And uh, this is why this um, contemplation is so important, to deal with that tension, to kind of slowly but surely release it through turning the mind, you know, again and again towards the way things really are. And then, you know, be with the uh, bodily experience of that and be with the experience of the mind, which might try to, you know, resist it. And there's a whole um, branch of psychology, which is called um, terror management theory, you know, which uh, deals with those often unconscious defense mechanisms, which we all share, you know, until we're making them conscious. And this practice is there to make those defense mechanisms conscious, the denial strategies, you know, which are mainly two strategies, the first one is, you know, pretending that death doesn't really affect me. It's not about me. It's about other people dying, but not me. So we can't really allow that to come here. I think it's mostly here that we feel it. I at least can feel it as I'm saying it, you know, here in the heart area. There's a, like a trembling, just a little, very little tiny trembling, but it, I can feel it. Because it's the you know the, the coexistence with the survival instinct. There is this tension there, and we need to get used to it. And through getting used to it and not you know standing up against it, it's just gonna get more and more subtle and gets released and transformed. And the second defense mechanism is you know pushing off death into the future, not now, not me. And not now, later, when I'm old, whatever that means. Because as, as we saw in the reflection before, one can die as a baby or even get born dead. There is no huge correlation between dying and being old. 
necessarily. This is an idea. So those two unconscious defense mechanisms, they should, we should make them conscious through the practice. And in this practice is designed for exactly that. And uh, before we were chanting it at the beginning of the day today, that's those five subjects for frequent recollection. They are very classic uh, part of monastic life. And also, you know, you could all print that out, maybe if you're interested and uh, put it somewhere in your house. Maybe you have a shrine or some place in order to frequently you know, stop by and read it. I'm of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. And I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me, at least at the moment of death. And then, you know, as a last one, the reflection on karma, on action with intention. You know, that whatever we action with intention we are doing by body, speech and mind, this will condition our character. This will condition our consciousness, our heart. And that's what will be with us in the next birth. If we are not fully enlightened, this lifetime, you know, consciousness will move on and seek another riding animal, another body. And bringing along all of these tendencies which we have cultivated. So this is, you know, the reason for this practice. Because once we have understood that, then uh, a sense of urgency arises in the heart. This samvega, it's called. And uh, with that sense of urgency and aliveness comes also. Energy which was held in unconsciously suppressing, you know, through not me and not now, that energy gets freed up and then it's, it's, it's available for, for practicing, you know, for meeting life ever more as it really is. So we have, you know, we have the capacity, but sometimes it needs to be unlocked. And these five subjects for frequent recollection, and in particular the recollection of death, is, is like a key, you know, which can unlock that suppressed potential. And it's not necessarily, you know, like a, a nice experience, because it can be quite rocky, especially in the beginning, you know, when you're starting. But then, you know, as we stay with it, it just starts to quiet down. Like a, you know, like a mountain stream at the, at the, at the source, it's kind of 
white water bubbling and rushing over stones. And then as it goes down the mountain, it just becomes like, becomes a creek and then it becomes a, a river and then it becomes a huge river and then it leads into the ocean, becomes ever more calms down because you know, more energy is released from that habit of suppressing and you know it carries us along it it um, energizes our practice you know by simply facing ignorance which is you know the main problem in the teaching of the buddha is how we can let go and transform ignorance into wisdom and compassion and you know, I remember when my path started by, um, when I was, let's say my conscious path started when I was 28, when my mother uh, very suddenly died from a horse riding accident, you know, very unexpected. And that shook me up to the, you know, the bottom of my being, really, because she was just 48 years old, you know, and and not old, so to say, and nobody was expecting she, she would die. And I'd never thought of that before. And then, you know, within six days, she died. She had some very big injuries from that horse riding accident and then was in coma for six days. And, and then she was dead. And then everything, you know, was turned upside down for me. And And I had suddenly, you know, some very, very deep questions came up about what am I doing with my life? What am I doing here anyway? And everything, you know, was just thrown open very quickly, overwhelming really for me. And and I had very strong, you know, feeling that I, I need some guidance. I need to, I want to meet someone who knows the path, even I didn't, you know, consciously think the, the, that word, but I, I knew there must be people who know. And then I was ready. And then it took about another one and a half years. And I found myself, you know, in a monastery in the south of Thailand and being on my first meditation retreat. That wasn't exactly how I had envisioned it, but... I just took the opportunity because that uh, some of the monks there, particularly the senior monk, Archon Buddha Dasa, deeply impressed me, you know, in his presence. I felt he knows, you know, even I didn't know what it was, but the, the, his presence was like unshakable. And I felt he had cracked the secret. So I, I just sort of came going to stay a bit longer. And I'm still, you know, doing this practice and I've gone even so far to take the ropes because I felt there was so much to integrate and I felt I, I wanted a supportive framework for it to really take it as far as I can this life. And yeah, so this uh, recollection of death is a, is a real key practice in on the path. 
And yeah, I never forget how fundamentally it changed everything about my life in a split second in a way. It's very quick. And I think in a few people thought I had gone crazy or something <laughs> because I was changing my life to this degree, but I knew what I needed, you know. And still today, you know, when I think back, this was the greatest gift my mother gave me besides, you know, giving birth to me, I think. It was like giving birth to me a second time round, you know. So, yeah, it was powerful. Very powerful. You know, this is why this practice is, is the, the most radical practice regarding impermanence because it's really, it goes totally close, you know. But it does bring, you know, tranquility, insight and grounding once we go through the motions of it. And the beginning can be extremely wild, high waves, and then it just starts to calm down. And uh, Achan Shah, you know, the, one of the bigger Achans in the Thai forest tradition, one of the sayings, he said, die before you die. Meaning, you know, the ego dying before the body dies, ideally. And, you know, in this practice, there's many, many times where we have to die to ourselves, you know, to our preconceived notions, to the patterns which we have cultivated over a long time, dying to those and letting them go die before you die. And then, you know, once we have done this kind of practice, it's not so easy to get lost in the world because we, you know, we have an incentive to really realize what is really important for me right now. What do I want to do with my life? You know, what can I kind of let go of in order to carve out more time for that which really matters to me? So it has, it has you know, very far-reaching repercussions once we allow this contemplation to do its work. It's, it's a natural process. Just need to, you know, get started with it. And this... Uh, Five subjects for frequent recollections on page 31 in, in our chanting book. It's a quite an ancient practice and it's very, very valid. It has not changed and won't change. This will always be five points, you know, where we can unlock our potential. You 
you know, priority is getting clarified and it's much easier to forgive or to go and ask for forgiveness once we have connected with that. The depths, you know, of, of being a human being, it comes all back to those five points. And the recollection of death, you know, being in the middle of those five, being particularly potent. So just going to read the um, poem one more time. Long after the front gate swung closed behind me, I could still hear them. Why talk so much about death? Find a husband to share your bed. Bring children into the world to leave behind after you are gone. But ever since I invited my own death into bed with me, I no longer feel lonely or afraid of the dark. What do we really bring into the world? What do we leave behind? A gate swings closed, then opens. Where does it come from? Where does it all go? We can just sit for a few moments.
So now we have a period of practice. And we just would like to, you know, remind you to really use the time in between our meetings for practice. Walking meditation, lying down meditation, sitting meditation, or the movement meditation Ayananda Bodhi was introducing yesterday. Really using it for practice because, you know, we have those longer periods of uh, open time between the meetings on Zoom to give you a break from the Zoom, really, and to give us also a break. So, you know, we are really on a retreat and trying to, you know, remember how it was when we were meeting uh, at Spirit Rock. We had these periods and maybe you can do that also now on your own, you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.